Thank you all for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. Shmuley, thank you for breakfast. It's fantastic. We were thinking about uh, what to discuss this morning. Something that's in the spirit of healing and something really important and powerful is music. Music in healing, which has a very ancient tradition going back millennia. And the Torah is full of it, as we shall see. You know, music is so powerful and so profound. And we have here a lot of musicians and music producers. So uh, you guys can help me as well to, to plunge into and understand the Kabbalah of music. What is so special about music? You know, we, if we look right to the beginning in creation, Bereshit, we see that God spoke the universe into existence, right? And the Mishnah says, that God created the whole cosmos through 10 utterances. He spoke the world into existence. But more than that, he didn't just speak the world into existence. In, in some ways, God sang the world into existence. And we even have an ancient text called Perek Shira. I'm sure many of you have seen this. Perek Shira goes back to Talmudic times. And it's really just a an account of what everything in creation sings, that everything in creation is singing to God. The clouds are singing, and the sun is singing, and the moon is singing, and the grass is singing, and all the animals are singing. So it's like the whole cosmos is singing to God. And you can get Perek and you go like one by one, what all these different things in creation are singing to God. And that might seem very like metaphorical, spiritual, like are these things really, is the sun really singing? You can actually take it very scientifically because today, if you think about it, what do we know about matter, about atoms, about particles? Go back a hundred years to the great physicists of the early 20th century, Schrodinger and de Broglie and their equations. They were able to show that all particles are really also waves and all particles are vibrating. Everything in the cosmos is made of vibrations and everything has a wave equation that goes with it. So it's actually, you can even understand this quite literally, that all matter, all of creation is constantly in vibration. Where all, all of us, all matter, this table, the room, the air we breathe, everything is in constant vibration. And there's a wave equation for every particle. So all things are in vibration. Everything is like as if singing to God. And probably the most like, advanced theory in quantum physics today is string theory, that if you were to reduce all, try to explain all phenomena in nature, all the fundamental forces, gravity and electromagnetism and all, everything, there's that one grand unified theory, is string theory, which could explain everything, and string theory reduces the whole cosmos, all of creation, into a set of vibrating strings, essentially. That all, the whole universe comes out of vibrations, out of vibrating strings. So it really, you can understand it quite literally, that the whole universe is singing, the whole cosmos is singing, that God sang the universe into existence. The Torah itself is a song. Right? We know we have a mitzvah to write a Torah scroll. And where do we get that mitzvah? When Moshe told the people to write this song, which is really parashat ha'azinu, which is a song. But then from that, the sages say, no, no, he, he meant the whole Torah, because the whole Torah is a song. We sing the Torah, right? The Torah has ta'amim. And when you read the Torah, you're supposed to sing the Torah. And actually, we're going to go into what some of those ta'amim mean, because uh, the Zohar explains what do the ta'amim actually represent. And we'll, we'll see that as well. well. We'll conclude with the Zohar very deep about We want to get into really into the Kabbalah of the Zohar and get very musical. So if you have some musical training, it's going to be valuable for you, especially. It reminds me also of Nikola Tesla. Nikola Tesla, you know, was one of the greatest scientists and inventors and electrical engineer, electricians of all time. 
Uh, I take my grade nine class every year on a trip. We just went last week because uh, we learned about electricity in grade nine science. So I always take them to Niagara Falls. Over there is the first power plant that Nikola Tesla built. So now it's a museum. It's an amazing, if you're ever in the area, uh, and if you're interested in this kind of thing, I recommend that you go. They turned, they closed the power plant like 10, 15 years ago because they built a newer one and a bigger one down the river. And, but it's, it's actually really amazing to see how a power plant works. We take it for granted. You just plug something in and there's chashmal, you know, there's like endless electricity. And this is a divine power, you know, what chashmal is, which is a topic for another time. The chashmal was the, the divine chariot, our sages say, was uh, powered by chashmal. Ezekiel, the prophet, it's the haftarah Shavuot, the first chapter of Ezekiel, where he sees the divine chariot and he says it's powered by chashmal. And chashmal is really electricity. The, our sages translated it in the Septuagint, when our sages translated the Torah into Greek 2,200 years ago, they translated the word chashmal as electros, electron. So it, back then even, they called, they knew that chashmal is electric. So anyway, generating power is something incredible. And Nikola Tesla pioneered that power plant, AC power plants. And Nikola Tesla said, this is one of his uh, most famous quotes. If you want to find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. And the whole universe boils down to this. It's all vibrations. It's all sounds. It's all waves. It's all music. And he also said... My brain is only a receiver. In the universe, there is a core from which we obtain knowledge, strength, and inspiration. I have not penetrated into the secrets of this core, but I know that it exists. So you think about one of the wisest, one of the greatest scientists of all time, one of the greatest geniuses and thinkers of all time. He was able to invent everything he invented, he said, he did it in his head. He could literally construct machines, motors, power plants in his mind. He didn't even have to write it down. He could hold it in, his, in front of him like a virtual reality thing and put it all together. And it says, he's one of the greatest geniuses of all time. And he says, my brain is only a receiver. I'm just downloading information from the universe. And I think that's the, exactly what Kabbalah means. My favorite analogy for understanding Kabbalah, Kabbalah literally means that Kabbalah means to receive. Right? So somebody who is a Mekubal, somebody who is a Kabbalist, Mekubal literally means a receiver. That's what, you, what, it, what it's really all about. What does that mean, a receiver? The, the best analogy that I, I always like is, you know, think about this room right now. It seems pretty quiet. But this room is actually full of music. Do you hear the music? No, you probably don't. But this room is objectively, scientifically full of music. If I had a radio and I just turned on the receiver, you'd hear the music, right? This room right now is full of radiation, of radio waves carrying music. Our ears can't hear those frequencies, but if our ears could pick up radio waves, we'd hear the music. We don't, our ears hear a very limited range of waves, just like our eyes see a very limited range of frequencies. But if you had the receiver, you could turn it on and suddenly the room is full of music. And so that's really what Kabbalah is all about, right? Kabbalah is being a receiver, like a radio receiver, and plugging into higher frequencies and hearing what a lot of people don't hear seeing what people don't see, right? expanding your range of frequencies. So I think that's like the perfect metaphor for what Kabbalah is really all about. It's about being a receiver. So let's get into the Kabbalah of music. So I was talking with some of you earlier about using music as healing, and we see that straight in the Tanakh. Where do we see music used as healing in the Tanakh? Anybody remember? Good. David Melech, right? Where did we use, where do we see healing with David Melech? With Shaul. With Shaul. So it says like this. 
in Sefer Shmuel. That the Spirit of God left Shaul, the first king of Israel, and instead he put Ruach Ra'ame et Hashem. God sent an, a negative spirit into him. And his servants told him, So there's a negative spirit upon you. So So let's find somebody who knows how to play the kinor, the harp. And he will use his music, playing the harp, to make you feel better, to remove that negative spirit from you. So yeah, find me somebody who knows how to play, and bring him to me. And one of his servants said, I saw the son of Yishai, who was David, from Bethlehem, so he's a great warrior, he's strong, and he knows how to play, and he understands things, and he also looks good. He was a complete package, King David. And God is with him. So Saul sent... Uh, messengers to Ishai, uh, send me David, your son, who is with all the sheep right now, because he was a shepherd. So whenever Shaul had this negative spirit upon him and didn't feel good, David would take the harp, he would heal Shaul, and he would take the negative spirit away from him. So King David was this musical healer. That's how he enters. This is where King David makes his entrance in the Tanakh. He comes in as this musical healer. That's who he is, right? Shaul is the king and he's having a really bad time and he's not feeling well. And they bring in King David, who will end up being the king of Israel. And it says, it goes on to say that Shaul loved David because he, you know, this is how he first met him as somebody who was his musical healer. Little did he know that David would eventually take the throne from him. But this is how David makes his entrance as a musical healer. So we already see right from the beginning in the Tanakh that music is used to heal. That there's something really powerful about music. We also see in another place in Melachim that you needed music to attain prophecy. So Elisha, Elisha Hanavi, who was the disciple of Eliyahu. And if you remember the story of Eliyahu, when Eliyahu was taken away, he was so great that he never died. Right? Eliyahu was taken up in a chariot up to heaven. Again, the divine chariot came down and beamed him up to heaven. And that's why we, in many places, we say Eliyahu will come back, like on Pesach, during a bris, all these situations. Why? Because Eliyahu never died. Before Mashiach comes, Eliyahu will come back because he never really left. He's going to come back. So Eliyahu, before he left, he told Elisha that if you see the chariot picking me up, then you'll be as great as I and double, even better than me. And he did see it. So Elisha, in some ways, was even greater than Eliyahu. And both of them were able to resurrect a child. And when Elisha wanted to prophesy, it says, he said, So bring me a musician. And when he's going to play music, then the Spirit of God will come upon me and I will be able to prophesy. So not only is music used for healing, but now we also see music in prophecy. So you can use music to get yourself into a very high prophetic state and to elevate yourself even higher. The Khatam Sofer comments on this particular verse and he says, if you take the word for music, zemer, zamer, and he says, there's a way of transforming. Remember, like the whole Torah is a code and there's a way to transform the Torah in various ways to decrypt 
the Torah. One of them is the uh, Avag Beged system. You've heard of it. There's like Adbash is very famous where you convert Aleph to Tet and Bet to Shin. Right? You switch around the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There's various letter transformations. And one of them is this Avag Beged where you take one letter and replace it with the letter next to it. So Zemer, you take the Zayn and you turn it into the next letter, which is a Chet. And the Mem, the next letter becomes a Nun. And the Reish, the next letter becomes a Shin. So when you do that, the letters of Zemer, with, through that transformation, become Nachash. So the Chatam Sofer says that music has the power to drive away the Nachash, the primordial serpent. That Ruach Ra'ah, right, that negative spirit represented by the Nachash, by the primordial serpent that represents evil, that negative spirit can be pushed away through music. That's what King David was really doing. David was pushing away the evil spirit upon Shaul through music. And also here, the Khatam Sofer says with Elisha, if he wanted to get into a prophetic state, he would use music to drive away any negative energy and therefore thereby be able to draw down information from the heavens. The Zohar even says in another place that it wasn't just Elisha that needed music. All prophets needed music to prophesy, to get into that state. And the Zohar says, we know that Moshe was unique among prophets. One of the 13 principles of faith even is that Moshe stands alone as a prophet. The Torah says this, right? That Moses alone was able to speak to God, panim el panim, face to face. So the Zohar suggests, there's different ways to explain that. What does that mean that Moshe's prophecy was different than all other prophets? Why was his prophecy better? So some say because Moshe was the only one who could prophesy conscious, and all other prophets were prophesying unconscious, maybe subconscious. There's a few ways to understand this. The Zohar suggests that Moshe was the only prophet that didn't need music. That all prophets needed music to prophesy, to get into a prophetic state, except Moses. That's what it means that Moses was unique among prophets. But otherwise, except for Moshe, all other prophets needed music. So the Zohar says that as well. And, and the last thing is, of course, in the Tanakh, we see that the Leviim in the temple had to play music. One of the requirements in the temple services was that there should always be music. And the Levim played musical instruments and they sang. And they did this throughout the week, even on Shabbat, which is one of the big questions. You know, we're not allowed halachically to play music on Shabbat. But the Levim actually did in the temple. Right? The services in the temple continued on Shabbat, even sacrifices. So we, we don't cook on Shabbat, but in the temple they did do bring sacrifices and, and make barbecue and all that and play music. So all throughout the week, the Levim would sing and uh, play musical instruments in the temple. It was absolutely vital for the services to be performed in the temple, the music had to play. So you have at least three different places in Tanakh that show us the incredible power of music, in healing, in prophecy, and even in the temple services to to facilitate the the, the greatest, most spiritual services in in Judaism, you know, in, in, in the Torah. Okay, so with that, introduction, what is actually the Kabbalah of music? How do we get into this? Uh, so now this is where your musical knowledge, we need your musical knowledge. Okay, so how does it work with music? How many notes do we have in music? Seven, seven notes, right? And you'll notice that there's these patterns of seven. Everything in the physical world, God created in seven. He made it in seven days. And uh, you find when you, with vision, we have seven discernible colors in the, in the color spectrum, right? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, seven colors on a rainbow. And then there's different, 
in between it's a gradient but there's seven distinct colors in music you have seven distinct notes and all the other sounds in between and and so on on earth you have seven continents and the, there's seven visible luminaries in the night sky the sun the moon and then mercury venus mars jupiter and saturn the other planets were not discovered until recently with telescopes uranus and neptune and if you consider Pluto a planet. But throughout history, there were only seven visible luminaries. So you find patterns of seven. Geometry also has seven on that, right? You take a cup and you can put only seven. Yeah, so in, the, in any physical space, you have six faces and an inside. Right? You have six external faces. In a three-dimensional world, the three axes, everything has six sides. Like when we shake the lulav on Sukkot in six directions. So in this physical world, everything has six sides on the surface plus the inside, the seventh, exactly. So you find patterns of seven in everything in the cosmos. So the same thing with music, you have seven notes, seven discernible, distinct notes that we can hear. And those correspond to the seven sfirot. Uh, if you remember your tree of, the tree of life, the mystical tree of life, and you have the seven sfirot, chesed, gvura, tiferet, netzahod, yisod, malchut. Remember these? Sounds familiar? So you have seven lower energies that God imbued into the universe, and they correspond to all of these seven things. So you have seven musical notes. And in music, then you have an octave. When you have an actual octave, you have seven notes plus the next the first note again, but double the frequency, right? So you have like do, re, mi, or in the, the English way is C, D, E, F, G, A, B, and then C again. And that makes one complete octave, right? So you actually have eight notes. You go from C to C, and then the second C is double the frequency of the first C. So you have an octave of eight. Now, what does that have to do with with Kabbalah. So the Zohar, Tikkunei Zohar, one of the sections of the Zohar that's called the Tikkunei Zohar, it actually was published before the Zohar. A year before the Zohar was published, the Tikkunei Zohar was the first section of the Zohar that was published in, uh, in the printing press. Uh, the first edition of the Zohar, the Tikkunei Zohar, came out first. And over there, page 51b actually goes into the Kabbalah of music, and it says something really incredible. It says, so, what does this octave have to do with God and music and spirituality and, and prophecy? Where is the connection there? It's something really incredible. So it says, you, I'm, I'm sure you've all seen this in the Siddur. Do you notice how when you, in the Siddur, sometimes you see the name of God printed, you combine Hashem and Adonai together. So it goes Yud from Hashem and then Aleph and then He and then Dalet and then Vav, and then Nun. You've seen this before? Yeah, so you combine, so you make, you take two four-letter names, and you combine it into one eight-letter name. Some, in English, they call it the octogrammaton, the eight-letter name of God. So you combine yud He vav He with Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud. So you have eight letters uh, together. That's the name of God from Yud to Yud. The Tikkunei Zohar says that's a divine octave. Because think about what an octave is, right? C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. You start with a C and you end with a C. That's the octogrammaton, right? With the, starting with the Yud and ending with a Yud, like the C to the C. It's, one, it's a divine octave, the name of God. And what does that mean to combine the name of God like that? Hashem, Yud, Hei, Vav, Hei, means the infinite, the Ayah, He is, was, always will be. It's the infinite name, the Ein Sof. It's like we can't even, we can't fathom Hashem. That's why we don't even say the name. We just say the name. 
because we can't bring it down into this world. So when we do bring it down and bring God into this world, into this physical space, that we pronounce as Adonai. Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud. So that name represents God here as manifest in, the, in this lower material world. So combining the two names, it's like making a channel from the infinite and down into this physical constricted space. We put them together and it's like you make a channel. See what I mean? Between the two realities almost. And so if you look at do even the gematria there, the numerical value of Hashem is 26. Yud is 10, He is 5. Vav is 6, He is 5. Hashem is 26. And with Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud, the gematria is 1 plus 4 plus 50 plus 10 is 65. So you take 65 and 26 and you combine them. What's the value there? <coughs> 91. 91 is a number, if you, you look across Torah, 91 is this number that represents combining heaven and earth. It's a fusion of heaven and earth. And you see this number in many places. For example, if you look at a, an angel, a malach, an angel is a being that can go between worlds, can go between these dimensions, can freely travel between the heavens and the earth. So a malach is like this, another connection between the upper worlds and the lower worlds. And if you look at the gematria of malach, mem, lamed, aleph, chaf, it's also 91. The malach is 91, representing that connection between heaven and earth. Think about Sukkot. Sukkot is the holiday where we sit inside of a mitzvah. It's the only real, really the only time where you're inside the mitzvah and you're surrounded by clouds of glory. And we say when you walk into the sukkah, it's like you're in the heavens. It's like you're in a little outside of time and space. The sukkah is supposed to represent the connection between heaven and earth. And that's also why you're supposed to be able to see the sky as like symbolically that this is a space that connects heaven and earth. You take the gematria of sukkah, samech, vav, kaf, hey, 60 and 6 and 20 and 5, also 91. The sukkah is 91 as a place that connects heaven and earth. Malach is 91 as a being that connects heaven and earth. The word amen, when you say amen, what are you really doing? The, our sages say when you say amen, it's like the person who says amen is even more powerful than the person who said the bracha. Saying amen gives you, is more important than reciting the bracha itself. That's how Chazal say it. What's so special about saying amen? The amen is like creating, opening the channel between heaven and earth. One little word, three letters, but it has the power to open heaven and earth and make that blessing, bring that blessing into actuality, from potential to realize it, from potential to actual. Amen also, Aleph Mem Nun, 140, 50 is 91. So you see these patterns of 91. Anything that connects heaven and earth is 91, always. And the octogrammaton of Hashem and Aleph Dalet Nun Yud together is also 91 as something that bridges heaven and earth. And so bringing it back down to music, that's what the music is doing here. One octave is the octogrammaton, and music is able to bridge heaven and earth. That's why Elisha and the other prophets could use music to open up a channel between the upper worlds and the lower worlds and receive prophecy. So done in the right way, just like the sukkah, just like the angel, it has this power to bring down divine information from above. Make sense? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, you could also do the opposite. Keep in mind that if you use music the wrong way, then, you know, it can also be not angelic, but it could be demonic, right? And that's also been a theme of music in 
throughout history and in recent times as well, of using music also in a negative way. You can use music to put people in a trance and make them do bad things, not just good things. Right? So it's important to point that out as well. Music has such power. It really depends what you're listening to and what you are applying that energy towards. Just like everything in creation, it could be used for good and for bad. So it's important to remember that what kind of music you listen to uh, is significant as well. It's interesting that uh, today a lot of people are very strict with what kind of music they listen to, especially in the Orthodox world. Like if it's not like Jewish music, you can't listen to it, right? Like it has to be either Hebrew or with uh, Jewish themes, Torah themes, which is, which is right, good. But uh, you would, we, don't, we don't necessarily have to be so strict. There's all kinds of different music that can put you into all kinds of different states. And classical music, of course, has immense power. And uh, I always like this. Uh, I wrote an essay about this once. There's this amazing parallel in Judaism and the, between the Jewish world and the non-Jewish world. In the non-Jewish world, one of the greatest musicians and composers of all time is Bach, right? Johann Sebastian Bach, J.S. Bach, who was considered like, the, you know, the, they say that he wrote the soundtrack to the Bible. He wrote, a, like he wrote music to the whole, what he would have called the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he's considered one of the greatest musicians of all time. What's amazing is that before there was a J.S. Bach for the, in the non-Jewish world, we in the Jewish world had a J.S. Bach, who was the Bait Hadash, the Bach, you've heard of the Bach? And he was also J.S. because he was Yoel Sirkis Bach, right? So we had a J.S. Bach also. Uh, he lived just before. And uh, our Bach, the Bait Hadash, actually in his Chuvot, in his responsa, he has, somebody asked him about this, and he has a very important little paragraph, a paragraph there about listening to non-Jewish music. And he actually says, listen, it's okay, depending, like we said, depending on the purpose, if you're just listening to it as music and to get you into the right state of mind or whatever it is to calm your soul, then it would be fine. Was he a musician? Probably. We don't know. Not that we know of. Not not that we have his music. But you'll notice that a lot of the rabbis were musicians, right? Especially the Hasidic rabbis, you know, they with the nigunim and and all that. The music, for sure, (laughs) yeah. There is a cadence to all writing as well, you know. It's true. It's like, it's like music. So yeah, so I always like that Bach and Bach connection. So our Bach, uh, the Bait Hadash, said that you could listen to any music, assuming that it's positive music with positive intentions and not associated with any other religion or idolatry or whatever. And he was referring to, of course, classical music that doesn't have words. And if it has words, then it's, there's an extra layer of difficulty over there because it depends what the lyrics actually say. But the, do the lyrics have, like, you were just talking about music the whole time. Lyrics, I feel like, aren't relevant because... Okay. They also provide meaning to the music, right? So, yes, and the music... No, the lyrics too. The lyrics have rhythm. Lyrics have power. Lyrics have, again, a cadence to them and so on, right? Think about rap music and and bars and there's a certain... Rap music is just lyrics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So lyrics have power too. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the music that we have is, is oral, is like not with instruments like nigunim and Shabbat tunes. So lyrics have power too. A cappella is also powerful using your voice, right? Now... We also see, uh, tying it into what's going on today, and Geulah, and the awaiting the redemption, the final redemption, and Mashiach. 
There's a very powerful passage in Sanhedrin, which talks about, you know, in Perek Chelek, which talks all about Mashiach and the end of days. Uh, one of my favorite pages, a few pages of Gemara. And it says, there's a verse in Ishayahu where it says, ulashalom ein ketz al David, that there, there will be peace, eternal peace on the throne of David, which of course talks, is talking about Mashiach. You know. Right now, we, the throne of David, the Davidic dynasty is on pause. So in this verse, anybody know what's unique about this verse? Does anybody remember what's the issue here in this verse? Say it again. It's not going to help you if I say it out loud, but if you see it visually, the pasuk, this is the only place in Tanakh which for some reason in the mem, in the word lemarbeh, is a mem sofit, in the middle of the word. Right? Usually the letter mem at the end of the word has a different symbol, it's closed. But here, lemarbeh, the mem is closed, inside the word. Really strange. It's the only case in Tanakh where there's a mem sofit, not in a sofit position, in the middle of a word. So the Gemara asks, Why is it, how can it be that the letter mem is always, when it's in the middle of a word, is open, but here it's closed? Where did that come from? And it says the secret of that closed mem is, the Gemara says, that God wanted to make King Hezekiah the Messiah. He wanted him to be Mashiach. We know that Chizkiyahu is described in Tanakh as the greatest king since King David. And he was the potential Mashiach of his generation. A lot of the prophecies of Isaiah are talking about Hezekiah. And God wanted Hezekiah to be Mashiach. And he wanted Usanchiriv Gogu Magog. And he wanted to make Sanchiriv, the Assyrian, who Hezekiah was able to thwart Sanchariv tried to conquer Jerusalem. He couldn't. There was a great miracle, if you remember the story. And his army got destroyed. And today we even have archaeological evidence for this because there is a, a prism that archaeologists discovered that Sanchariv himself commissioned. There's a few of them. Uh, and it actually over there says that he couldn't. It mentions Jerusalem and Hezekiah and says that he couldn't take over Jerusalem. It lists all the places that he conquered. And when it gets to Jerusalem, it says, I hold up Hezekiah in his like a pigeon that I hold up in his cove, but he doesn't say that he was able to conquer him. He was only able to place a siege on Jerusalem, and then God destroyed Sancheriv's army, and he retreated. And so we even have archaeological evidence to confirm this narrative in the Tanakh. So God wanted Sancheriv to be Gogu Magog, that Gog, the final kind of villain opponent of Mashiach. But what happened? Amram midat adin lifnei Hakadosh Baruch Hu. That you know, the, I guess the angel, the spirit of, of judgment, arose before God and said, "Ribono shalolam, Master of the Universe, Umad David Melech Israel shamar kamashirot v'tishbachot lefanecha lo asito Mashiach." But King David sang so many songs for you, right, and wrote so much music for you. He wrote all of Tehillim and most of Tehillim and all this music, and you didn't make him Mashiach. King David should have been Mashiach. David himself. And you didn't make it. And now, Hezekiah, Chizkiyahu, she'asita lo kol anisim halalu. And you did all these miracles for Hezekiah. Velo amar shira lefanecha. But he never sang any songs for you. Now you're going to make him ta'aseu Mashiach. So what happened? Lechach nistatem. And God said, okay, no. We're closing the matter of Mashiach. And that's why the mem is closed in the word lemarbeh. That God wanted Hezekiah to be Mashiach. But the heavens protested. 
said, what? But he didn't, he didn't even write one song for you. How could he be Mashiach? <laughs> so I said, okay. God got overruled almost. That's the story. So Hezekiah wasn't able to be Mashiach because he didn't write any music for God or sing any songs to God. So we know that there's this idea that Mashiach is a musician like King David. The sweet singer of Israel, right? Mashiach is Mashiach ben David. And like King David, he is a musician. And the Zohar, going back to that same page of the Tikkunei Zohar, page 51b, it says like this. Atid min galuta sitrin. So God will in the future bring back all the Jewish exiles to Israel from all four corners of the world, which we're already living in now, of course. We are already in this period of the ingathering of the exiles as Jews return to Israel. And then we, as it says, We say this in our prayers every day. Below the shofar, we know that there's this idea that before the end of days, there's going to be this great shofar that's going to be blown to usher in the end of days. So we say this in our prayers all the time. Blow the shofar and bring us back. And, and gather all of our exiles together. So the Zohar goes into a whole discussion on why does there have to be a teka shofar, teka shofar? What does that have to do with anything? Why couldn't it just say, okay, gather all the exiles back to Israel? Why the shofar? What is so important about the shofar? And the Zohar here says that we need, music will play a role in the geula. Just like the shofar is a musical instrument, you need music in the geula. The passage continues. So until the geula, God will be patient with sinners. He will be very patient with sinners. He's, you know, like we say, God is erech He's long-suffering. He's patient. But at the end, he's going to stop. The sinners stop the sins, and remove sin from the world. And this is the meaning of the ta'amim. If you guys remember your ta'amim when you read the Torah, you remember your bar mitzvah parsha? The ma'arich tarcha sof pasuk. So you know when you read the Torah and you get to the end, oftentimes you have this ma'arich tarcha sof pasuk, right? That's the Sephardi way. I don't know how this <laughs> I don't know how you get it. <laughs> yeah? Yours sounds a little different. Yeah, you remember how you were saying? <laughs> so the Sephardi way is ma'arich tarcha sof pasuk, right? So the Zohar says this is what is the meaning of those ta'amim. Ma'arich means to extend, that God is extending his patience. And then tarcha is toach is, you know, it's like a struggle. There's a conflict there. And then sof pasuk, and then it's over. Right? This is the secret of the Geula, that God is patient, 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 patient. It takes a very long time. We're waiting for Mashiach, for Geula, for so long. God is being ma'arich, ma'arich, ma'arich. And then there's a tarcha. Then there is the struggle, a short struggle. And then sof pasuk. And then it's over. Right? Then the sof comes. <laughs> That's the meaning of, those, of the ta'amim. Ve'od shofar olech raviya. You know, raviya, the little dot on top. Ravia and then Darga. Darga is the little one, right? Darga Tavir. Ba'uzimna deit machun chayavaya me'alma. In that time when the sinners will be removed from the world. Salkat slota beniguna ba'arba minin. There will be a song of four types, of four dimensions, a four dimensional song. And I'm sure you've all heard this. This is the meaning of Ravia. Because Ravia, what does Ravia mean? Ravia means a four. Right? Reva, Meruba, something. Quad, a quadrant, a quad. So what is this fourfold song? 
And I'm sure you've all heard this before. You've seen it on kippahs. You've heard it on vans blasting music in Israel and in other places. Uh, you guys probably know what I'm talking about. The Inun Shir Pashut Veda. There's the, it's the simple song. Veda Yud, which corresponds to the Yud of God's name. Shir Kaful, and then the doubled song, which is Yud Hey. Shir Meshulash, and then tripled, which is Yud Hey Vav. And then Merubah, which is Yud Hey Vav Hey. So it's this, what's called the fourfold song. And what I was referring to is the breast lovers, because that's where the Nanach comes from. The Na, Nach, Nachman, Nachman, Neuman, that whole thing. This is where they got it from, because the Zohar says there will be, at the time of Mashiach, a fourfold song at the Geulah. So the breast lovers adopted this to do the Nanach, Nachman song. That's why it's one letter, the Nun, then Nun, Chet, Nun, Chet, Mem, and then Nun, nun Chet, Mem, Nun. That's where it comes from. So, you know, every Hasidic group thinks that their particular Rebbe is Mashiach. And so if Rebbe Nachman is Mashiach, that's his song. That's his fourfold song. They're all yeah, I mean, look, they're all, or they're all right. Every Rebbe is the Mashiach for his Hasidim. And uh, so, you know, there's, there, you can't separate between more, a more personal redemption versus the redemption for the whole world, right? So for a breast lover, that's their kind of personal way to connect. Fine. So that's the, that, but that's where it comes from. The, the nanachs come from this passage in the Zohar, that there's going to be a song that's, that has these four stages, or four, the corresponding to Yud, Hey, Yud, Hey, Yud, Hey, Vav, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. The fourfold song. Shir Merubah. It's the fourfold song. Veda Hashem. Bishma de Hashem, Salkat Slota de Ishrinta. You know, from that comes, you know, the Shrina. Oraita Beniguna, the Torah was a song, and Shrinta Beniguna, the Shrina is like a song, and through that, Israel Salkin Migogaluta Beniguna, and Israel will be come out of their exile through song. And this is the meaning of Adau Dichtiv, Az Yashir Moshe, Uvne Israel at Ashira Azot. Remember in Shiratayam? It's also in our prayers. Az Yashir Moshe. Why does it say Az Yashir Moshe? Az means in the future. It should have said, you know, Shar Moshe. When they crossed the sea, the people sang. But it says, Az Yashir. Then Moses will sing to God at the end of days. What does that even mean? And the Zohar says something amazing. What does that mean, Az Yashir? What's the gematria of Az? Aleph, Zayin. Eight. Right? What is the eight? That's the octogrammaton. That's the divine octave. And remember, it's a one and a seven, because remember what's an octave. It's seven and the same one from the beginning back at the end again. The C and the C again. The Yud and the Yud again. So the Zohar is saying this is the meaning of Az. Az is an octave. It's the one and the seven. So based on that, it, what I think is the meaning here, this is simply my hypothesis of what is this Az, what is the octogrammaton, what is this divine octave, a different interpretation of the fourfold song, less lyrical, like the Nanach, and more musical. If the divine octave, if it's like if you're going from C to C, you have the seven notes and then the same note at the end. And the, the Zohar here is saying that the fourfold song uses these, the letters corresponding to Hashem. There's the Yud, and then the He, and then the Vav, and then the He. So if you look at your octave, the first Yud of the octogrammaton would correspond to the C. All right, and then you have the Aleph, and then you have the He, which would correspond to the note E. And then the Vav would correspond to G, and the final He to the B, which is a very classic chord. That's the C major 7 chord. Right? That's a, it's a seventh chord. 
in music, and there's five types of seventh chords, and they get progressively more depressing. They start very happy, and then as you go you know, down, they, you diminish them, they get sadder. But the, the major seventh is a happy, it's more of a happier sound. So it's used in a lot of jazz, and it's used in pop, and that kind of thing. So it's a very hopeful, positive chord. Open. 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 Unresolved. Open. Exactly, there you go. See, you hear it from a music producer himself. So the C major seven, I think maybe that's what the Zohar is talking about as a, a, a hopeful, redemptive chord, right? Using that pattern of yud hey vav hey from the octogrammaton, right? and that's known to be a, an open, positive, happy, happier sound, which would be fitting for the redemption. That's my hypothesis. I don't know if that's accurate. I just think it makes sense. So if any of you out there are secretly Mashiach and you want to write a song of redemption, then use, build it around the C major 7 or another you know, major 7th chord like that. Maybe that's the, the song of Mashiach is like that. Wasn't so. something about the 8th note being introduced? So some people read this as when Mashiach comes, he will introduce another higher 8th note. So there is such a concept, yeah. I don't know how that, if that's physically possible. Is that a spiritual idea? Is it just some people said that because they didn't understand music theory and didn't know what it means to have us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah for sure, for sure. That it's something even greater, that there's an eighth note corresponding to the higher sphilot, for sure. But I think the pshat here, when you consider that it's saying that this is the meaning of us, of a one and a seven, you could also read it as it's because the octaves repeat in sevens plus one, right? So I think either one is, is fine. It's just hard to fathom how an eighth note would, would work into this. But certainly spiritually, there's, there is this understanding that Mashiach, in the end of days or whatever, in the Messianic age, there will be an eighth note. Okay, so just to finish up, the, the Zohar has a lot more to say about this and it compares, uh, I'm just going to skip it, you can read it on your own. It compares the eight notes of the octave to Again, the chariot, what we talked about at the beginning, to Yechezkel's vision in chapter 1 of Yechezkel. Thank you. So, if you remember what Yechezkel saw, he says he saw Ofanim and Seraphim. And the Seraphim had four faces and four wings. And the Zohar also says that that's, the octave is connected to that. The four faces and the four wings, four plus four, the, four, the two four-letter names of God into one eight-letter name. And that corresponds to the wings and the faces. And and the Zohar says very poetically that the Machan begadfaihu, and as they uh, beat their wings, they make music. Beniguna, you know, the music comes from the angel, the beating wings of the angels. So again, tying it all back to these, this angelic power of music to connect heaven and earth. So you can explore that on your own later. And it concludes by saying, "But David That's why King David specifically wrote music. And he praised God with these eight. That's why it says in Tehilim, what do we say in Tehilim when they open certain psalms? Right? What does that mean, Alashminit? On the eighth, right? The eighth, the, the octave. Right? You know, many of the psalms open up by saying which instrument this song should be played on or to what beat, right? To what whatever rhythm. So is one of those types. So the Shminit, the Zohar says is this, that's the octave, the octogrammaton. And just to finish up with, since we're already on David and Mashiach ben David, and we know that David played two instruments. He played, well, he probably played more than that, but his main instrument, like we read at the beginning, was the kinor. The kinor was a big harp. And then if you wanted something more portable, 
you had the Victor. yeah the navel the liar the liar was a smaller version right that's called the navel so we say alay navel and alay kino that he he played mizmor shir leyom shabbat which is interesting because it's mizmor shir leyom shabbat alay asor alay navel alay kino so we don't play music on shabbat but King David did. But King David did, right? It's funny because we say Mizmor Shir Le'Yom Shabbat. We say it a few times on Shabbat, and right at the beginning it says, "Praise God on Shabbat." Alay Asor, Alay Navel, Alay Kino. What happened? What's going on? Where's Maybe the reform got this one. Maybe the reform got this one right. Playing music on Shabbat. <laughs> That's going to be edited out of the video. <laughs> no, you know, Jonathan, Rabbi Sachs has a nice... Well, we're editing uh, out. <laughs> Rabbi Sachs has, he was asked this question. He said he thinks that on Shabbat we pause with the instruments because we want to give more power to the voice. Mm. We want to hear more of the music of the voice and less of the, the instruments, which we have the other six days of the week. So I think that's a good answer too. We use our voice for music. So if we look at King David using the kino and using the navel, those are his two main instruments, the, the harp and the lyre. Well, where do we see the harp and the lyre today? Most people don't play a harp or a lyre. That's not very common anymore. Well, what happened to the harp? Anybody know what happened to the harp? What became, how did the harp evolve over time? So the harp was this big one, right, with lots of strings. And so it's very hard to play vertically and whatever. So they put it, you lay it sideways and you have the harpsichord. And then the harpsichord had a problem because it didn't have hammers and you couldn't regulate the volume and the sound so well. So then Cristofori invented the hammers to the harpsichord and that made the planar harpsichord, which became the piano. So the piano is really just a modern day harp. And then what happened to the lyre? The lyre was a seven stringed instrument and the lyre in Greek, do you know what the, the Greek word for a lyre is? And it appears in Sefer Daniel. It's in the Tanakh. I'll read you the verse in the Tanakh, Daniel chapter 3. So it's listing what you will hear music in these instruments. And it says, Al-Karna, which is a keren, a shofar, mashrokita, some kind of whistle, and kitaras. Wow. It's in Daniel. <laughs> and kitaras is the Greek word for a lyre, for a portable seven-stringed instrument. So the kitaras became the guitar. Right, and which used to have more commonly seven strings, now they tend to have six strings, usually, the common guitar, right, or more, yeah. Uh, so we have the piano, King David's instruments became the piano and the guitar, which is for music today, those are the two main instruments that people use. And um, what's amazing about those two things is if you think about the, again, the gematria, the navel and the kinor, if you do the gematria, navel, Nun, Bet, Lamed is 82, and Kino, Kaf, Nun, Vav, Reish. If you do the math, I'll save you the trouble. 358, which is Gimatria Mashiach. So, so if you want to be Mashiach, use the C major 7 chord and write something on piano and guitar. And to, to connect the Sefer Yetzirah, which you ask, a typical piano today is made with either, usually with a total of 230 or 231 strings. And why is that important? If you remember from Sefer Yetzirah, what's 231? Do I remember? 
231 gates, right? There's Ghala Sha'arim, Reish Lamed Aleph, 231 gates to the heavens. What are these, where do we get that number of 231 gates? There's 32 pathways and you make the circle and you connect them all across. Right, so when you connect the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, it, each combination of Hebrew letters. So Aleph with Bet, Aleph with Gimel, Aleph with Dalet, then Bet with Gimel, Bet with Dalet, and so on, Gimel with Hey, and all the possible combinations of the 22 Hebrew letters is 231. So there's 231 gates. Remember, God constructed the whole cosmos through these sounds, through the Hebrew alphabet sounds. So you have 231 sounds, 231 combinations of sounds, and they connect to the heavens. So it's amazing that a piano, a typical piano today is made with 231 strings. And there happens to be 231 strings in creation, 231 combinations of Hebrew letters, as Sefer Yetzirah says, through which God created everything. So there is something really deeply mystical about the piano. Even the fact that it has 88 keys, if you think about that, 88 is also a number that represents the heavens because there are 88 constellations. In the night sky, we have a total of 88 constellations. And again, there's an 8 and an 8, that number of 8, the repeating theme of the octogrammaton, the divine octave. And you have 88 constellations in the night sky, 88 keys on the piano. And then, of course, if you add the three pedals, you get 91. <laughs> so you have 91 buttons to press you to make... What else? Effie. That happens to be also 91. I didn't, that's I didn't invent the nickname. Effie is 91 uh, also. So that's uh, a little bit about the music. The piano and the guitar and Mashiach and the 358. So we'll end with that, that you know, music is something really incredibly profound, spiritual, it's healing, it's prophetic, and it's going to bring about the Geulah. Like it says in the Zohar, that the final Geulah will happen to a Nigun, that we will come back uh, happy with this beautiful rhythm, and Az Yashir Moshe, then we will all sing again at the final redemption. So we'll end with that. Thank you, guys.